The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. I have Karen Lynch today here with me from Insights Now. She is the Senior Director of Qualitative Insights. Welcome, Karen. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for be- joining me. I think actually you are one of my first guests that focuses on qualitative insights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that doesn't really surprise me. Although qualitative data is, you know, kind of on the rise as well. It's more than just qualitative research. Sometimes we have some qualitative data we have to consider, um, you know, in, in some of our other methods. And what do you, when you, what do you attribute to the rise of qualitative um, data or qualitative insights? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, we have so much, and as you know, and your audience would know, we have a lot of access to a lot of data right now, but very often we need to have a little bit more uh, kind of insight into what the numbers are showing us, the pattern and the, and the trends, and we need to really understand them, why they're showing up that way, what's driving it. You know, a lot of the work that we do that requires a qualitative approach is, um, you know, people just trying to understand, uh, you know, our objectives are often to understand something, whether it's the consumer journey or whether it's uh, the trends that the data is showing them, like, why is that happening? And what's attributing to that? What are the drivers of some of the ratings and the rankings that we can discover in other ways. You know, it's interesting because I, I, I think traditionally, and, and it's probably changed, you know, you would do qualitative research um, or, or focus groups to kind of help uncover the issues that you want to probe about in the quantitative phase. Um, are people doing qualitative as an add-on post-quantitative as well, just to kind of make the insights come alive? Well, absolutely. They're 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 bringing it in just to to what you're saying. Sometimes to, in, to ahead of time to inform their survey design or their interview, if they will. But then, yeah, afterwards they're they're adding on a qualitative component to to check what the data is showing them. You know, this is this is something that we saw. Let's understand why, so that we know we we're telling the right story. And all about you know telling stories with our data too. So if we can understand it, we can tell a better story about it and make it a little bit more actionable because we. Once we know the reasons and the rationale for the, what the trends are showing us, uh, it becomes more actionable. That makes perfect sense. When you say it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, and, and you guys, are, you've been working on this, this uh, the methodology that's um, under the umbrella of Playful Insights. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure thing. So Playful Insights, it's, it's really, it's a play-based method that leverages people's imaginations. So if I take a step back and talk about what that imagination is, it's 
a type of thinking that isn't necessarily what, what the world knows as system one, which is kind of implicit, which is your fast, unconscious decision-making, or even system two, which is a little bit more complex and a little bit more effortful, you know, kind of that deliberate discernment, if you will, for consumer decisions. But there's, there's something else at play, which is when the mind wanders and when people imagine a future, either using a new product or navigating a new um, store design, if you would, retail environment or a new bank branch. So it's, it's highly important in the innovation space for people to understand what, what the content of one's imagination might be. And that's where, you know, we talk a lot in qualitative about aspirational um, kind of wishes and hopes for the future for people or even fears that they may have projected out to the future. And so Playful Insights is a way for us to use the power of play to un- unlock that imaginative perspective thinking. So is it that they don't, like consumers don't really know what they want and you kind of construct it in a playful way to figure out where they lean towards? T- tell me a little bit more about that. So yeah, it's interesting. And I'm not a neuroscientist, but there are um, neuroscientists that have shown that when you ask a consumer about the future, there's there's a part of their, their frontal lobe that that part of your brain will actually shut down and brain activity slows when you ask somebody about the future. It's, they are not able to think about the future in the same way they think about their immediate decision-making or their kind of, you know, short-range thinking. So, so without that brain activity, that's why when you ask a consumer about the future, sometimes they um, say, I don't know, or they can't think about it. It's why people have difficulty even um, recording and writing down their goals, if you will, because the future is hard to see. And if we do ask that information, we're not sure how credible it is because we haven't given them a way to explore those dreams and visions and aspirations in a way that's safe in that research setting. So again, the method, that's part of why we leverage play is to um, is to kind of break down some of the barriers that do shut down that frontal lobe and allow them to go there in a very safe, deliberate, and strategic way. It, it, it's almost like gaining their trust first, right? And not having them feel scared. Um, right, right. So, so tell us, a, a, how, do, how do you actually do that? What's, what does play <laughs> mean? <laughs> so yeah, so, you know, play, you can, you can, you can play without a tool, if you will, it's, it's almost like a state of mind, right? But when, when we're doing any kind of play-based research method, and that's part of why gamification is on the rise, right? It's because when adults are at play, they feel less stress and they take more risks. There's great energy. They're developing social with the people that are around the table, if you will. So we know, we know through research, again, that um, play increases productivity and helps people solve problems. So there's a lot of great stuff with any play method. Okay. With playful insights, we're also leveraging um, a few other learning theories, which are largely around um, something called constructivism and constructionism, which is basically two different psychologists that studied the idea of building mental models and how a model, a tangible model helps, you know, children to understand the world around them. It's why children love to build with blocks and and make sandcastles on the beach. When you construct model, you learn about the world. But then also what happens as your education continues, where when you build a model, you can actually educate others with the tangible model in front of you, which is why in a lot of our education system, we are having children build dioramas or poster boards. When you construct something, you are more easily able to communicate your 
your learning and your knowledge. So those theories um, are at the heart of something called Lego series play and okay. play comes from Lego series play. So what I mean by that is Lego series play, which was created by the Lego group, um, you know, the, the children's toy that we all know and love. They developed the method as a way to use it in their boardrooms, if you will, to get out of their own way with some um, communication challenges they were having and strategic planning they were attempting to do. They said there has to be a way to use our tool. And when I, they made their model of Lego series play open source. And uh, when they did that, that was around 2010, I, it came on my radar and I realized there is a great fit for qualitative research in this tool. So I worked with a colleague of mine and we adapted the method of Lego series play into what is now known as playful insights, which is using some precepts of that method, but in a qualitative research setting. So individuals are literally building a model that represents their thoughts and feelings and captures their imagination and then explaining that model to the other people in the room to heighten understanding of these thoughts that we're trying to explore. That's really cool. I like it. We, I actually interviewed somebody from Lego and they told us, he was sharing with us uh, the, their methodology to meetings and strategic planning and, and reference that methodology as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's really cool. Yeah. And, I, and I, I do think that you know, when, when I think about play, it's like people's barriers are just, they're, they're brought down even with yeah. each other. And so they're more open to sharing it and, and talking, uh, talking in, in maybe a little bit more abstract sense. Yeah. And, and even their, their barriers are brought down with each other, but even themselves, there's another, again, I, I'm, I'm always talking about kind of the psychology and science behind the method, but there's, um, there's something called Johari's window where when you set up the environment, right, people can, can even start to learn things that they have pushed below the surface, right? So you're opening up some subconscious thoughts that are there. It's just that the environment in a typical group discussion doesn't quite get you to that level of psychological safety. And a lot of times in a playful insight session, people are, are saying and articulating things that they didn't necessarily know that they'd be able to articulate. So they leave with a sense of, um, a sense of awareness of their own thoughts too. It's, it, it feels almost magical in a way because uh, the the fulfillment on both the consumer side and the client side and the researcher side is great. That's fantastic. And, and does this have you seen this method um, be more effective in certain verticals or any, any kind of like specific niche um, that that it applies to, or is it is it more broadly uh, leverageable? It's pretty broad. Mm -hmm. So it's. Um, you know, we we have effectiveness at it starting at about adolescence, and it's wonderful for if you're trying to explore with teenagers, for instance, who are often buttoned up. We actually study with Kraft Heinz, for instance, where we were working with adolescents, and they were really able to articulate thoughts and feelings that showed us what um, kind of their emotional intelligence in a way that, you know, most, most parents of teenagers or adolescents would say, I didn't know they had it in them. So they're, they're, they're able to be articulate about some of these very deep and complex thoughts when we use it with that age group. It's fantastic throughout the adult years. Um, I would say all the way up to a senior population, because once you introduce a method like this to a senior population, suddenly there's manual dexterity issues that, um, and, and that gets in the way. You obviously have to be able to construct with Lego bricks in order for the method to be effective. 
So, uh, you know, other than that, there's really no limit to who can use it. Obviously, it's wonderful in the tech space. There's like a marriage between even just an interest in the method and those in the tech space, because a lot of individuals who are in that world um, grew up with the method. So they get to psychological safety much faster because they're very, very comfortable. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, What other things are you seeing in the qualitative space that's kind of different or surprising? You mean other methods in general? Yeah, just in general in, the, in terms yeah, of the qualitative sure. research. Sure. You know, we we are doing, we do a lot of um, upfront innovation work at Insights Now. So we're okay. forming R&D, for instance. So we have a, a couple of other neat things that we're doing where we're learning to um, help inform R&D in their product development, for instance. We're, we're talking to consumers prior to even the development of a con. Of a, um, of a concept and we're helping put together the cues that can inform R&D and kind of translate what's on a consumer's mind for a new product idea and then R&D kind of execute against that. So we use qualitative methodologies that tap into metaphorical thinking around sensory aspects, for instance, like visual design elements, textural design elements. So that's an area that we focus on quite a bit. Um, we move that along the innovation pipeline, if you will. So we do a lot of Uh, methods where we're co-creating or co-designing at this phase, I guess you you will, where we're, you know, testing a bunch of prototypes qualitatively and getting, again, more feedback for R&D to refine a product. A lot of that's in the food or beverage space, but we also do it, a lot of concept work qualitatively, where we're trying to make sure that we've, you know, nailed the right um, concept itself to go into some more quantitative testing to, again, help people to launch new products in a way that's faster and more efficiently. That makes sense. I love it when research is embedded in the, um, in the creation of new products uh, every step of the way. It, it just, and I know when I was at IBM, we did that. It, I mean, at times it was hard to translate speeds and feeds into a need state, but it was definitely uh, worth it. Right. And also to bring the organization along. Right. Well, and you know, that there's a reason why human-centered design is such a big deal right now, right? The whole, um, the whole idea of design thinking is based on starting with consumer input. So we, we certainly see much more success when a marketing team learns from consumers and then designs a product that meets those needs or overcomes those pain points, as opposed to, here's a new product idea, how do we sell it into consumers, right? Yeah. So when we, when we put human beings at the center of our innovation, we have more success. Certainly at this at this time in 2019, that's what drives success is that human-centered thought process. Totally agree. Have you ever been involved in research where they've, uh, and you don't have to say who it is, but they've taken a product concept off the table just because it just did not go well with consumers? Well, sure. And, you know, I think that there's... um, there's two things at play when, when that happens. It's, it's one, is it taken off because they've asked consumers about something, again, in the future that consumers can't quite see themselves. Comprehend, yeah. yeah. They can't comprehend it. So mm-hmm. if that gets in the way of something that could be very innovative that might disrupt the marketplace, it would be a shame to pull it too soon, right? So that's why some of the work that we do that helps people explore the future in, in, in ways where they can imagine then then we wouldn't necessarily throw out the really innovative, disruptive new product idea. Um, and on the, the other side also is we certainly have, you know, moved ahead of head with some things that, that maybe um, we didn't take the, or the teams didn't take the consumer input to heart, right? They kind of 
ignored the findings. So right. I've in my career have seen both. Yes. They've either pulled something prematurely or they've pushed something without listening to the feedback. And those things are unfortunate, but you know, for each one of those, I'm, we have, you know, many, many stories of success. So yeah. And, and that's what research is supposed to do, right? The insight's yeah. supposed to inform ideally for, for a uh, positive outcome, but also, you know, a positive outcome is also not potentially not making the wrong decision. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Um, you also are a trustee on the board of directors of Creative Education Foundation. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little <laughs> bit more about that. Oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a passion of mine. The Creative Education Foundation is um, uh, kind of, they have a mission to equip people, whether it's, it's adults or even children. Okay. The tools of deliberate creativity and applied imagination. So the, the, the basic the basic belief that those of us who serve on the board have is that there is a creative solution to every problem and what we need to do is find that solution and then implement it so that's kind of at the heart of everything that we do at the creative education foundation so it's educating the world yes. with with tools of um, creative problem solving and a model of creative problem solving that we use that stems from one developed by um, Sid Parnes and Alex Osborne in, in the seventies, um, back when Alex Osborne was the O in BBDO advertising. Okay. And it's kind of the start of brainstorming as you will, which is to divergently think, mm -hmm. but then also to convergently think like, let's not let our, our criticism and critical thinking get in the way of our ideation, but let's make sure we don't just ideate and say, all right, there's 200 ideas, but how do we select and refine the right ideas to move forward? So the model of creative problem solving is at the heart of everything that the Creative Education Foundation um, believes. And we do a couple of different things to, again, kind of put our mission out into the world. We, okay. we educate at an annual conference every year, which is actually coming up in June, called the Creative Problem Solving Institute. And I have been you know, privileged to actually serve on the faculty there teaching some of these courses in creative problem solving and the tools and techniques associated with the method and the model. That's fantastic. Um, and we also go into school systems and mm -hmm. have facilitators that are working with different school districts to empower teachers to mm -hmm. bring skills to today's children. And, you know, that type of critical thinking is sometimes put aside in, in our education place for, you know, academic efficiency and excellence, if you will. But, but our children need these skills to adapt in today's workplace. So it's kind of twofold. We're trying to equip adults and we're trying to also equip educators. They also have a um, kind of a program that works for today's youth too. So, uh, you know, trying to get, again, these skills into the hands of children. So it's so, a big passion of mine. I can talk forever about ah, it. <laughs> I, well, I love it. I love when people are passionate about topics and clearly you have passion for, for all subjects related to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm curious, so just so I understand, it is, uh, it's the belief that any problem has a solution, right? right? And then it's yeah. providing tools to help find the solution. Yeah. And not just find it, but, but execute against it. So the basic model of creative problem solving that we, we teach is really quite simple. You, you start off by clarifying the situation that you find yourself in and really making sure you're addressing the right problem. Because very often we, we try to come up with a, a solution to a problem and we haven't really cracked the nut about whether that's really what we should solve for. So the, the first step is really to clarify what you're doing. The okay. second step is to ideate and come up with ideas for it. 
But then another step after that would be to, to develop the, the top idea. Uh, sometimes we move a little too quickly to implement an idea when we haven't really thought through all the nuances. So True. we clarify, we ideate, we develop, and then we implement that idea. And, it, and it's a solid action plan. So we have learned through, again, a lot of research into the, the study of creativity and applied imagination by using divergent and convergent thinking at each of those steps that I just outlined yep. when we, we come to really innovative solutions to problems where people are stuck. That sounds really interesting. Well, yeah. th uh, it sounds like, uh, and I love it that you're bringing it to the school systems because it's yeah. great that, you know, our youth have new tools in terms of solving problems um, and, and working together. Yeah, and the, the workplace too because yes. these children will end up in the workplace where we all are. That's so true. the more people we can educate in the workplace, then the, um, you know, the stronger our workplace will be. Certainly it's being used in, in other situations beyond that. You know, there's some social issues that are being solved using the method. A lot of people come from other countries. Some of them are developing countries to, to learn so that they can take it back to their countries and do some amazing philanthropic work as well. That's fantastic. Yeah. Karen, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, a fascinating conversation. It sounds, you know, it, it sounds like you absolutely love what you do. And, I, and I, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> I do love what I do. I, I, I have a wonderful career and um, am blessed with wonderful people around me. So it's been a pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.